Welcome to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. The podcast that covers all things about humans, technology, technology. and particularly the bit in between. And welcome to this episode of 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. And today we are facing the realities of applying human factors in real world scenarios. One of the really great things about hosting this podcast is not only having an opportunity to talk to new people and having, having a great excuse to drop into their t- uh, Twitter DMs and say, look, can you come? I'd like to have an opportunity to chat with you. But it's also a really great excuse of having to catch up with friends who I've known for a long time and hopefully find out something new about them, something more about what they've done in the careers that maybe we haven't found out uh, today. And today is one of those um, latter um, experiences. So I'm really quite really looking forward to this. I've mentioned about the ergonomics conference this year um, quite a few times because it was so nice to be in um, in, in an environment where we're meeting people again and chatting and generally having a drink. Um, but for me, there was one huge standout moment, and that was the Institute lecture delivered by Susie Broadbent. The, the reason for this was it was a moment that she talked about the delivery of human factors in practice. I'm not talking about that fantastic research study where we get a lovely plan to satisfy all the academic requirements as listed in the book, but that situation where you are one of you may be one or there's maybe a couple of you as practitioners and you've got to juggle everything. And that's not only just juggling, sorting everything else out, but change, the changing engagement with the project, the user communities um, changing, evolving, and not only making do with what you've got, but actually having that, I don't know, a dynamic ability to maximize every engagement to get the maximum input for the good of that product or service that you're trying to deliver. Susie's full and frank lecture did spark quite the debate and the discussion in the hall has not only resonated um, during the event itself but actually afterwards I've had more than one discussion and that has referred back to well Susie said this so when I reached out to Susie and asked her to come and uh, share some of her experiences with us then she enthusiastically agreed which I'm very pleased about so welcome to the podcast Susie. Hi Barry. Um, um, yeah. <laughs> You're already worried about what you've let yourself in for now, aren't you? I know, I know. <laughs> I should just learn to keep my mouth shut, shouldn't I? Yeah, but where's the fun in that? <laughs> so just to give those people who maybe weren't at conference or who haven't worked in the in the sort of same sectors as you at the moment, can you tell us a bit about um, your, cur- your current role? Because I'm not actually entirely sure what you do on a current role because you, you left us in defence and you've gone, you've gone to do new things. So what are you doing and what, what do you, what's your day-to-day look like? Okay, so my official title is I'm a national investigator for the healthcare safety investigation branch. So you will know from your years in defence and other industries that we have accident investigation branches. We have them in defence, we have them in rail, we have them in maritime. And um, it was an idea um, about five years ago that actually we should probably have one for healthcare as well. Um, so that that was set up about so it was set up about five years ago, and the idea is that we carry out more systems investigation instead of apportioning blame and you know bad doctor, bad nurse, don't do that again. Send them for more training. You know we, we actually try and look at the systems and understand you know if it's happening one trust, it's probably happening in other trusts, and what can we learn nationally from a particular event in one hospital that gives us that mirror into what's going on across the healthcare system and because we're a national um, because we investigate nationally we can make recommendations right in the top at NHS England medicine and healthcare regulatory authority you know places like that so it can be changed hopefully across the system so that we're not seeing the same adverse events happening over and over again 
Um, so my day-to-day -day role, um, I'll have a number of cases, a number of investigations. Um, mm. So I'll go out and I'll look at the initial reference event that's been referred to us, either by a family member or by the trust themselves, even, you know, they generally do serious incident, event, um, serious incident um, reviews locally within the hospital. But again, that learning doesn't get shared elsewhere. So they can call, can us, call in us in and we can come, come in, in and have a look and see see what we think from our from our systems perspective. So we'll interview staff, we'll do observations, you know, and I'm quite relieved that I haven't actually fainted during a surgery yet. I'm actually <laughs> all those years of watching Grey's Anatomy have really paid off. Um, so well, you know, CPD you know. right there. <laughs> I shall tell my husband that next time he tells me to switch it off. Um, but yeah. So it's really interesting. interesting. So it's going out, interviewing people, understanding what's going on, looking at what the national picture is, you know, what standards do they work to? What advice is there out there? You know, can we talk to the Royal Colleges? Can we do this? Can, can we can we can we help basically? Um so yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I am at the stage at the moment of just writing up though, which is less of my thing. <laughs> Down that accountability stuff. <laughs> I know, um, but we publish the reports. You can see them on the website, and various calls of reports that we are in the process of, so that people can get in touch and offer um, any advice or experience that they've had as well. So um, there's only about fifteen of us in the team. Um, it's an odd mix, I would mm -hmm. say. Um, so when it was initially set up, it was very much taken as the um, the blueprint from air accident investigation just right. put into healthcare. So we've got a few people from there. So we've got a number of ex-military types. We've got a few people in from healthcare, you know, ex-nurses, ex-midwives, ex-doctors kind of thing. We've got a few, few, few human factors people. And then we've got a couple of legal people, um, you know, ex-coroners and things like that. So <laughs> that's, that's an eclectic mix right there. That sounds quite, quite cool. It is. And the idea is that, you know, you know, the first investigation I was sent on, I was sent with somebody with a medical background so that they could, you know, help me navigate all the new acronyms and things that come out when you when you change domain, when you change discipline, when you change aircraft, when you change, you know. Yeah. So it's really good. Yeah. So you mentioned you looked at it from a systems perspective, because when we've delved into healthcare in the past with some of the previous interviews, we tend to focus on um non-technical skills it's like sort of cruise horse management and things like that but from what you're saying actually what you're looking at is much broader than that you're looking at what the full breadth of human factors or um a, just a wider subset or yeah i mean that is the intention so you know currently i'm writing sections about cognitive workload i'm writing sections about currency and competency and writing sections about hmi design you know you, you see what's there when you go out and you look at the investigation that is as you've picked up on this um issue in healthcare that they do see human factors as are you hungry are you angry are you late are you tired is the acronym i've seen halt halt oh really yeah, okay you know, yeah. hungry angry angry late, tired, tired. And predominantly all those things <laughs> But that's kind of where the limit of human factors goes. They've, they've, they've tried to bring in a lot from aviation, but they haven't really necessarily got the culture change behind it. Right. So they go, oh, checklist, brilliant idea. idea. But then they don't necessarily understand how seriously aviation take their checklist. Yeah. You yeah. know, and how they carry them, carry out. them out. So, so, so it's trying to cross-pollinate, I think, between what we've learned in other industries and what we can bring across to healthcare. Oh, that's really cool. Right. So, obviously, I'm, 
known you for a while, but all of that time I've known you, you've been in defence. Um, mm. But you haven't spent all of your time in defence either. So how did you get started in human factors? Well, I mean, because most people don't actually recognise what human factors is until a certain point where it was always like a light bulb moment or a gradual input. What was your sort of in- introduction to human factors? Why did you get involved? Um, I went to Manchester University to do psychology. Um, So at Manchester University at the time uh, was Jim Reason um, of Human Error Book fame. Well, actually, he wasn't there in my first year. He was off writing the organisational accidents book. (laughs) So we had Rebecca Lawton, one of his PhD students, who's now Professor of Healthcare at Leeds, um, deliver his lectures. Um, But it was then that, you know, I really understood it as a, it was amazing you know all the psychology lectures are obviously fascinating yeah. but being taught cognitive psychology which I'd learned at a level but in a very you can remember this many things you know you can do this memory does this this is how we think attention works kind of stale kind of way to suddenly have it presented in a really applied way in a let's watch this episode of air crash investigation oh here we go <laughs> and apply it that way yeah. you know it was that kind of you really felt that there was a role there and a job there and a really important application of human of psychology there. Um, so that's where I got into it. Plus, uh, Jim Reason was my tutor and he would often be like, oh, I won't be here next week. I'm talking to uh, Switzerland. And I thought I kind of fancy that job. <laughs> say, yeah, that's, that's cool. so, so what's been the... Um, so even then, if you're doing um, that sort of psychology that applied, was it that point where either um reason sort of give you you know told you about human factors and ergonomics or did, did that come later or was that was that there and then no that was very much then and there so um I, I did the modules um that were running in organizational accidents and human factors at the time and then after i finished um i applied for lots of like research assistant jobs in psychology but i think everybody was and it was really difficult to get into so i thought i'll go back and i'll do a masters and at the time in leeds which is near where i'm from was uh, running a human factors and ergonomics masters so i got myself on that and uh, yeah took it from there basically um so, so when you so you went and got your masters um what 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 happened next what happened next was i applied for a variety of roles and i got one at um atkins engineering a company i would never have normally applied to as a psychologist you know you, you don't you don't really get this career structure in psychology where they go oh you can go and be a human factors person you know you generally get the you know you're going to be clinical you're going to be forensic you know this is this is the skill set you know um whereas this was kind of different so i didn't really know where to apply for for these kind of things but this this role at atkins came up and it was um working for the for cirrus which is confidential information reporting and analysis system for the railways So people could phone up and tell us their safety concerns. We would go back to the company and say, this is what what we've had reported to us. What are you going to do about it? We'd publish a journal so everybody knew. Um, So I spent spent about a year there, you know, just living in fear of the phone ringing and have to do an interview. (laughs) We'd all just sit there and go, oh God, it's your turn. Um, but it, it was great because you never knew what you were going to get, get end at the end yeah, of the phone. It could have been a signal, it could have been a driver, it could have been, you know, someone on a track layer. You know, you just had to be ready to ask those questions to kind of understand what their issue was and what could potentially be done about it. So after I'd done a year there, I moved to the Cirrus Core facility where they did more of the analysis of 
mm-hmm. what the reports were coming, you know, oh, look, there's loads of reports about fatigue. Oh, look, there's loads of reports about this. And therefore, we could publish more on that and, you know, make more targeted um, recommendations almost in saying, look, this company appeared to have an issue with this. This, you know, <laughs> yeah, just yeah. do the analysis of the of what's coming, coming through, through the door. The door. And then from so, there, still with Atkins, yeah, I got seconded down to London for the London Underground Modernisation and Refurbishment Program. That sounds fun. Redesigning sounds tube fun. stations, yeah. They're mm. in new systems, um, new station management systems, yeah. but yeah, overhauling the control rooms for London Underground, basically. So, yeah. So was that with you? Were you working as part of a team then, or were you on your yeah, own? Yeah, it was. It yeah. was a very multidisciplinary team. There, they had like there was a number of human factors people sent down there, based down yeah. there. Um, but we'd each be in separate teams for different train stations. So you know, I'd be doing Earl's Court, Stamford Brook. Somebody else would have these, you know, other ones. But we'd be working with the HVAC people, the lighting people, all the all the diff- mechanical engineering, all the different. We'd have separate teams, which is really cool. Um, so but d- it d- was um it was it must have been 2002 because no maybe anyway we got the phone call saying oh london's got the olympics so we immediately all had to shift <laughs> to east london yeah 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 it's a, so did you do you now go through the underground sort of knowing the different bits where you had an impact um that's going to be quite rewarding and it's in its own little way and where all the secret tunnels are Oh, cool. Yes. Yes. So you could also then be that secret agent who could use the tunnels because you got that you got that knowledge. No comment. Fair enough. I, let, let's move swiftly on. So where, where so you've done the um, stuff for the Olympics. Where, where did you where did you go next? So because I was on combat down in London, um, I kind of missed home. I kind of wanted to come back up north and uh, somebody sent me a job application for BAE Systems. I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. I know. Who <laughs> would do that? And I thought, you know, that sounds. You know, I don't want to work for a big, horrible defence company, but you know, I'll go and see what they have to do, have to say, and you know, it'll be good, good interview practice. And I arrived for the interview, and it was a Friday afternoon. And if you know anything about BAE, you know it shuts at <laughs> Friday lunchtime. You know, most of the staff leave. Um, so all the jets were flying because pilots, you know, all the maintenance had been finished. So the pilots had the hands on the jets. So it was just, you know, it was just like, oh, actually, this is quite cool. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I thought, I, I thought I'd go there for three years. Yeah. I thought I've done three years rail. I'll do three years defence. Then I'll go do three years nuclear. Then I'll be an Uber consultant. And mm-hmm. 15 years later. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, there was, there was something wrong with maths there, wasn't there? <laughs> 15, yeah, nearly 16 years. Yeah, no, I mean, one of my enduring memories was one um, was one. I think was it my first trip up to Wharton, or certainly one of my early trips up to Wharton. And you you met us at the at the terminal, and um, and it was quite cool. I sort of stepped off. I didn't know what I was doing. Didn't know where I was going. And just as you said, low, then the red arrows flew by. And I was like, "That's impressive to, to get that sort You're of welcome, that, Barry." Yeah, I, I was, I was blown away. I mean, just to have, have that on tap was fantastic. But um, so, what sort of projects did you get involved with that you can tell us about um, with BAE then? Because fifteen years, you must have done done one or two. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, lots of different cockpits. So I started on Tornado. They were doing a big upgrade to the Tornado. Um, in that they'd, 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 they'd finally got the computing power above one megabyte. <laughs> <laughs> K- 
kids today just don't don't get it, do they? Just... I know the tornado yep. suddenly had colour, so it was trying to convince people that colour should just be used sparingly and not just to put colour all over the carpet. Yeah. Um, you know why? Why is this red? Why is it bad? Then don't make it red, kind of thing. So, um, but yeah, there was the upgrade. I think it was the, the tactical information stuff that you yes. were working on as well for the Harrier. Um, so I did that and the secure comms for tornado. And then moved over to Typhoon Cockpit Group, Eurofighter, five years there, um, doing cockpit assessments. And again, get, trying to get human factors more involved in the design side. Mm-hmm. They traditionally, you know, the human factors people had fought really hard to get involved in the assessments when they brought all the pilots in to do the assessments and ask the human factors questions. Um, but they hadn't managed to get as far as getting involved in the design side yet. Yes. So me and my colleague Annette at the time really pushed to get us involved in the design side because we were going to assessments going that looks a bit rubbish I wouldn't have designed it like that (laughs) and then do you know what guys if you'd asked us this earlier we would have said a definite no to that design (laughs) which doesn't tend to go down well either but uh... no it doesn't no and that and that was it it was it was learning to be able to stand up and hopefully not offend people at the same time but then they didn't necessarily care about offending the human factors people they they referred to as jellies for a long period of time and that they, they couldn't nail us down to anything which is true i mean that that is that's <laughs> but it, it, actually i hadn't thought of that before but you are absolutely bang on the we spend an awful lot of trying time not trying to offend anybody else so they don't sort of discount us but then we're just meant to suck it up um from their perspective and take almost because we work with so many different user groups that you you know it's not one person it's, it's not like single bullying or anything like that but it's almost, almost like institutional um you know yeah, we just yeah. meant to suck it up a colleague sent to me a while ago he said not only are you a human factors person who people don't listen to but you're a woman who people don't listen to you've got the double whammy yeah it's um yeah it's 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 i would never thought of it quite like that before so but so then you've so you've been involved with loads of projects at BAE and um, mm. and made um, a substantial impact on on the domain as well because of the work that you've been up to. Um, what prompted the move to to health then? If you you know you, you're illustriously well known in the defence world, you, well, did you just want? So to, I was I was working on, on Tempest, Tempest. Mm-hmm. future cockpit, future fighter coming into service, twenty thirty five. I think the time frame is. I was like, that's a long time away. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I thought, do I really want to, you know, the rest of my career working on potentially just one aircraft? Is that what, I mean, it's doing loads of cool stuff. Don't get me wrong. There's so much cool stuff going on. Um, But I had a bad day. (laughs) And I went home and I looked on the job board. Simple as that. I've always been interested interested in health. In my MSc, I looked at how healthcare professionals cope with shift work. Right. And I think with COVID and things like that, I just thought healthcare really needs some human factors help. I'm really interested in getting into it because I don't know if you've ever looked, 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 looked at a lot of the doctors' jobs in healthcare say you must have been a clinician. Yeah, yes. You've got to have been a doctor or a nurse, and then we'll teach we'll you teach about you human about factors, factors, as opposed to let's get a human factors specialist in and they can learn yeah. the domain. Yeah. You know, I think I've said to people quite a lot, you know, you know, I, I couldn't fly a fast jet either. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I yeah. couldn't drive yeah. a train, yeah. but I seem to do okay in those roles. 
you know that that's what that's why you need your you know to work with the user and ask the questions because you know they'll know it you know even if I was a nurse I wouldn't know all of nursing across all of healthcare you know yeah, it's 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 asking those questions isn't it so so yeah that that's that's really I mean to have that depth of experience and like say to be able to transfer um because I guess the the skills are the same. It's just how you apply. It. It's new catalogs of knowledge. It's it's learning new, uh, new domains and new things like that. So that's the bit by the sounds of it that keeps it interesting for you. Definitely. Um, so yeah, even though I was at BAE for fifteen years, you know, I, I moved around. I think I did tornado, typhoon, R and T, and then tempest, and then ended up running running the uh, human factor shared service as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> where I think I, I think I probably realised management wasn't for me and I wanted to do more hands-on stuff which might have been <laughs> a bit of believing as well I actually just want to do human factors because I think you get to a point in a certain company where they're like management off you go <laughs> I guess that's one of the things isn't it you we sort of get pushed through not most people most companies have a management stream not many have a technical stream mm-hmm. um some do and, and and great and all that sort of stuff but then yeah if you if we, we sort of assume that because you're a technical expert that you want to do management, you want to look after big teams and stuff. And, you know, for some people that's that's not the case. Um, I'm still quite keen on keeping a, a small, tight team um, rather than uh, taking over the world. So, yeah, no, I completely get that. Yeah, I loved looking after the human factors team. That was great. I loved having people with loads of different levels of experience and, you know, yeah. seeing all the new graduates come in. It's like your little HF family. Um, exactly. As long as it's HF, it, I'm all good. Yes, it's then when it gets broader and stuff that you're like, oh. <laughs> but so what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and talk about you know your experiences about um, the kind of what you what you relate to in in the lecture, but about how we apply it in the real world and sort of I guess that differentiator. So we'll be back right after this break. This podcast is supported by K-Sharp, the human science research and human factors consultancy. If you want to know how innovating in the relationship between humans and technology can add value to your business, product or research, then visit www.ksharp.co.uk. And welcome back. Today we talk with Susie Broadbent about the realities of applying human factors on the ground. So, Susie, for everything you've sort of highlighted, um, you've have sort of mentioned about having to integrate with teams and about having to almost sell human factors. Um, Why do we need to shout? Isn't it obvious about the fact that, you know, we add value? Um, Why why is it obvious to us and nobody else? I know. I know. It's just really hard, isn't it? I think it's because it's really difficult to show the accidents you prevented. (laughs) Mm. It's really easy to show accidents where where human factors hasn't been considered in their results. But it, it's really difficult to actually quantify that cost benefit, um, especially because people are sensitive about it. People don't want to admit that you know there was something in the designs maybe should have been there, or you know, and you know, as a culture, we're still very much a blame culture. We're still very much you know blame the person at the sharp end. Um, the, the, you know, different industries have, you know, different approaches to that. Some are better than others, but there's still pockets of, you know, I will cope with this. I will get over this. I don't need you to fix this for me. I will just, I will be fine kind of aspect from yeah. the users themselves. But also, 
I think there's a worry from senior management that we're going to add delays, we're going to add extra costs, you know, obviously we come in going, yes, we need a million hours to be able to do a proper human reliability study on this, which I totally get the frustration with, which is, I think, the difference between the academia where, you know, you might have three or four years to do a PhD or to do a study versus like a right you've got two weeks what are the big issues what's gonna what's gonna get this to fall out of the sky or what's gonna you know what are you gonna die in a ditch over that was the favorite phrase at BAE you know you're not going to be able to fix everything what are you going to die in a ditch but what are the bits that you're going to go no this is not going to work so yeah I mean it is that I mean almost that the first comment you made around it's hard to prove something that we it's almost like trying to prove a negative or something isn't it mm. but um and no matter, it's a constant call I think we have is, right, is there any case studies for, um, thing, and they're all invariably, well, this accident happened. And you start th throwing out Three Mile Island, you start throwing out, mm -hmm. um, you know, all, all these air accidents and, um, and things like that. But it is hard to sort of turn around and say, well, actually, if you apply it now, you will save this amount of money or we will make it better. Because, again, we, if we do our job right, I guess you can't see it because yeah. it's just it's just it's usable um yeah it's it's an interesting piece so so with what you've done um and you you mentioned the the academic side of things because i think that that was part of the discussion in the hall wasn't it when 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 the um at the conference was you've got that um the people who want to do you know they, they've come up with these methods and all this sort of stuff they've got great books and they are fantastic we use yeah them they're brilliant yes yeah. they're, they're amazing but you mentioned that sometimes you know you can't get the, the you know the um, statistically significant number of users you can't get um, beautifully repeatable experiments um, why can't we do that what's what's the what's the real world challenges that make this so difficult the real world challenges again are time and cost but also um, availability of users I mean in healthcare at the moment even trying to get interviews with people can be quite tricky because they are so maxed you know if I was going to go in proactively and want to design stuff would people prioritize that? over you know the frontline stuff they're doing at the moment i mean the, the challenge in defense was always when i was doing cockpit design was well how many test pilots are there in the world how many fast jet pilots are there in the world you know how, how do you get and how, how, how do you get some of their time to come and do what you want to do and the simulator time that's been used for other things or you know the the cost of actually flying you know it, it becomes quite quite expensive. I mean, luckily in defence and in well, in aviation particularly, the test pilots do have quite a voice and they luckily saw the benefit of what we were doing. Yeah. So, you know, okay, you know, talking to human factors wasn't quite as good as flying the typhoon, but, you know, it was better than going, you know, to look at some software or something Yeah, like yeah. That. <laughs> you know, so at least, you know, we were quite high up the pecking order and they were quite key to engage with us and look at what we were working on and stuff like that. So, you know, we got we got support from them for assessments and for design in the end. Um, but other industries, I know they don't, it, it goes back to the benefit, doesn't it? If you can't see the benefit, if you've not done it that way before, then I think there's this thing as well about safety. Oh, we'll just investigate accidents when they happen. There's not this understanding that we could actually be a little bit more proactive about it. Yes, and, and I guess do them things about this could go wrong as opposed to this has gone wrong. Yeah, exactly. So... So when you do and you talk about using test pilots, and I guess the same is true in any industry. We have these um, 
uh, these champion users, um, for want of a better expression. Um, what are the downfalls of using them? Because I mean, they they're great. They and it, if you get them on board, they're highly motivated, and that I've I think almost in every domain I've worked in, uh, or every platform I've worked in, I'm working that many domains, but the um, they're always keen because they they because they were part either are part of it or were part of it and they see it as a real thing that they want to help their friends or future friends and you know they so other people don't go through what they had to go through are there challenges with with using them sort of people is there things is are there are there potential issues they've got to be aware of yes when i first started i just thought oh, these guys are so arrogant, these guys are so awful, oh my God, I don't want to, because they're so direct, yeah. that's how they're trained, they're very direct in the way they put, put information across, um, they're difficult to get a hold of, because, because they're flying, whatever, and also they're the experts, should we really be testing our new systems on the experts, should we not just be using, you know, just the frontline pilots? <laughs> Um, and in fact, one of the requirements managers I worked with at the RAF used to have on his tick on his tagline on his email, "Fighting for the hundred-hour wingman." Oh. He's like, you know, he's like, I I know I can, I do, can it, do it, and I know they can probably, probably do, it, do it, but the guy who's got a hundred hours on type is he really going to be able to do this? You know, so and and it's something they do teach them at test pilot school to try and put yourself back in that position and understand what might happen. You know, obviously you as a test pilot are perfect but other people <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah. so we did have issues like that i remember doing um doing a, a hazard identification with uh, one of the test pilots and i'm going no you'd never do that no you'd never do that no no one would ever do that and then told me about three of his friends it had happened to. <laughs> <Fair>. <laughs> again it's just that question a little bit more going really no one's ever made that mistake oh well yeah. actually <laughs> so if we've got all these um you know it, it's not as easy to do it as 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 the book would like like you to believe and, and all that sort of stuff um what can we do to make it easier what what are the sort of things that we should be pushing out there to um get people to realize that you know it's all it's almost a just in time challenge, isn't it? It's it's doing it what... is, it is. And you know, I would have customers when I was on the AE going, I don't want to sign a project on this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you've got you've got a hundred hours, that's it. What can you do in that time? And and you, you know, you caveat it accordingly, going, Well, with the evidence I've got or with the time I've got, this would be my recommendation. Um so I think that's it's understanding that balance. It, it would be really useful for me, you know, with all the human factors methods books, if they went, if you're short of time, use this one, you know, almost a flow chart at the beginning going, I'm doing this kind of accident investigation, which is the best model for me to use. You know, I'd have time to read the whole book. <laughs> you know, do it in five different ways, which is the best one for me right now. And that's why I miss the Advanced Technology Centre we used to have at BAE, because we used to have like our own in-house academics who could just phone up and go, hello what's the latest in workload how do i measure it this way <laughs> yes no it was um that it, it was the the eclectic mix of people in in that organization was was brilliant um and i've got to admit that whole bit i've i've got a um i've got a notebook um additional notebook of what i call firefighting um mm -hmm. of right this is going wrong what can i do and i use that as a quick reference of right i've kind of got this situation and somebody's sort of do 
I find that people not only say, right, what can we do? And I need to know like in 10 minutes about what it is that you do. And oh, book. Oh, we can do a bit of that and a bit of that. And I'll take half yeah. of that, some of that. But you're right. It'd be really cool to have almost that a published view of that um, from all of our experiences. So then exactly from a, 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 it's our toolbox, isn't it? It's yeah. knowing which tool for which task. Okay. What are you interested in? Are you interested in workload? What are you interested in? Are you interested in SA? Are you interested in, you know, we can, we can fit the tools. I mean, so, obviously um, we're human factors. People will talk about all of it, but. Well, absolutely. And, and I guess that's <laughs> the other side, isn't it? We, I guess when people come and say, right, you've got, this many days to work on it we will fill them days um the, there's i don't think you we would ever be in a situation where no 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 you, uh, two whole weeks we don't need to do a, <laughs> we could, a week is fine um there's always so much that we can do that you we always want to fill that uh, um fill the time available so you've done that i say you've done that jump from um from a number of different domains um how have you found that and how easy is it to how pack your bags up at um, up at BAE and then turn up in, in, in the healthcare and say, yeah, here I am, look at my toolkit. Um, <laughs> it's... I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I've never really stopped to think about it. I just did it. Yeah. Um, it depends. It depends it's from which domain you're jumping from, from into which one. Which one. So okay. from rail to defence, and felt like, oh my god, this is so exciting! It's such a brave new world. Look at all these wonderful human factors people around me, yeah. kind of thing. You know, it was a lot more that. Jumping from defence to healthcare is like, oh my god, what are you doing? Is that because you went? You've gone from a domain where I mean, you've also gone, gone to health where you've known some about it because because mm -hmm. the work that you've done. But is that because you've gone from something where you are, you know, you were one of the preeminent experts in that domain um, in the country to a brand new? Um, I, I think it's the respect or? for human factors. Actually, right. I don't think it's me personally. <laughs> I hope not. I think it's 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 the understanding of human <laughs> factors okay. and what it and what it means. You know, at BAE there was an established human factors team. Before yeah. before the products go out, you know, you've got your human factors involved, as the mandate says now, right from the start through the process. Whereas you know we're looking at stuff in healthcare and going, how did this get into the system? You yeah. know. It's. I'll say it is a bit crazy. I've seen quite a few discussions now on, in, like, so on Twitter and all things like that. And you see examples of things like, I don't know, pharmaceutical labeling, uh, labeling, or things like that. And you sit there going, but you've got two bottles that are exactly the same. One of them <laughs> is like water, and the other one is is something that's going to kill you if you get more than three drops in you. How's exactly. that? Exactly. Exactly. It's that kind of thing. I went I went out on a site visit recently and they showed me one of the store cupboards and I was like, oh, my gosh. And I went, wait till you see orthopedics. <laughs> <laughs> you think we're bad? Look at this one. <laughs> Brilliant. And bless them, they said to me, we have recently redone it so that everything for the left hand side of the body is on the left hand side of the stock room and everything for the right hand side of the body is on the right. Hand. Really? They don't they don't state that that should be a thing that should be wow. done maybe yeah it's um i mean I, like i said I've, I've, I've in many ways i think just because of the learning i've done over the past i think i started doing my learning really around the healthcare sector was was at the conference yeah uh, um because um i took uh, the bit of advice to give go and put so go and put yourself where you don't know in somewhere where you don't know when yeah. i was like could be anywhere really um but i chose health and um and just seeing some of the discussions debates go on the 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 minutiae where people were debating and then um, 
sitting there and actually seeing some of the other things that are coming around and, and that and you're going like wow there is clearly it's a fertile land for yeah that. i mean i me and some colleagues at hc were doing some work on fatigue at the moment and you know you know how well established it is in aviation and the railways that the risk that fatigue has it's almost just not you're not able to talk about it in healthcare it's almost because it's on the individual to declare themselves fit for work so people in investigations don't want to admit that they're fatigued because that could go against them on their license right okay, but yeah. if the hospital's asking you to work on those shifts then that's not on you surely well, <laughs> you know, so, so, I, it, it's I, I, such a culture shock it really is but seen... speaking to colleagues who come from other industries as well they're going if we can just twist the dial a little bit then it's yeah, got to be worth it. I was going to say, because I've seen loads of episodes of ER and all that sort of stuff where they've been working like sort of like 25 hour shifts and things like that. And then they're like, what do you mean you're tired? <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so if we were going to take um, human factors, I guess, because so, one one of the things that I think we, we're seeing is there's still not enough human factors practitioners coming through. Um, yeah. And, you know, I got asked the question on um, on a when I was doing the Human Factors Cast pod, podcast yesterday, um, where they was they were saying, "Oh, in the UK, I've got um, uh, I'd like to do a human factors job, but I can't find any human factors jobs out there." And I was like, You're "Clearly not looking in the right places because there's loads." But how could we describe, I guess, human factors to make it more appealing? How could we, you know, how most people fall into human factors at some point? Um, nobody grows up they want to be either astronauts or they want to be you know fast jet pilots or things like that nobody wants to be an ergonomist um what could what could we do to describe human factors to make it more appealing do you think um i don't know i have been talking to iris at the uh, chartered institute about this actually because after i gave that presentation i said well you know we're desperate for more people um we've lost a lot of people to ux for it, for it, for it, for it. Mm, yeah. Um, which does seem to me to be cool. People, People want to design websites, but not, you know, other things. Um, but I think it's 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 the psychology for engineers and the engineers, <laughs> engineering for psychologists, isn't it? It's yeah. If you don't quite neatly fit into one of those, it's a perfect overlap. If you're interested in how things work and also interested in people. It kind of works for us, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. So we're, we're a really weird Venn diagram. We are a bit, we are a bit. And, you know, we've got so many names, it doesn't help us. And, you know, what what can we do about it? You know, it's been around for a long time, although, you know, my, my colleague Laura referred to it as a teenage discipline. We're still not, you know, quite, quite there, you know. True. So. But I think also because you put a comment on, um, I think it was LinkedIn the other day, um, saying, um, you know, we all do human factors and if anybody can describe what it is in a nice pithy statement can the letters know and it's so true because like yeah what's that tagline it's the it's the question i dread um mm -hmm. i mean first of all it's from my parents so son what it is you do, do you actually do well okay you're gonna need a this is this is a two bottle of wine explanation job yeah, yeah. i remember uh, trying to explain it to my grand when i got my first job and she said i'll just tell them you work on railways <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah, no, that, see that that's been a really fascinating insight into actually applying this sort of stuff. But I've got three more questions for you, and then I'll let you go. Um, these are the same three questions that I ask everybody, um, so it's not personal. But first one, if you've got a, have you got a book or a reference or a guide uh, or anything that you know that is your, you keep going back to it time after time after time. Now that could be a fiction book as well if if, if you don't have uh, don't have a um, technical book. But is there something there you use? 
Uh, it's quite nice now, actually, not being in that firefighting state of mind to actually get into reading again. Um, but the one I've probably referenced the most and still reference now is Ironies of Automation. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. there's so much work coming on in human factors and human, human autonomy teaming. And it's like, we don't really need to reinvent with the, re- the wheel here. We know what the issues are. You know, they were put in that paper 30 years ago. I was going to say, yeah, that's... Um, <laughs> And every so often I go, there must be something new. Is there a new, is there a new, uh, are we still quoting this one? It's like, no, but it is, it's, it's, it's brilliant. And it's, it just opens up people's minds, I think, to that issue and why human factors is important as well. Because those issues that they're talked about in there. Yeah. You know, yeah. I remember oh. Fiona Casey used to get really annoyed when people went, we're designing UAVs, you know, they're unmanned. Why do we need human factors, people? <laughs> yes, if only it was that simple. Exactly. Um, so if you could if you could go back a number of years, a number of years is entirely up to you, but to give your advice to younger Susie, um, is there any sort of advice you, you give yourself if you knew what you knew, knew now? Don't be scared of asking questions. questions. I think it's really easy to do when you've, you know, when you've been around the block <laughs> as often as I have. And, you know, you can you can go, hang on, I don't quite understand what you mean there. Whereas when you're a junior engineer, it's really difficult to admit you don't know the acronym, you don't know what they mean. But nobody has ever, after I've asked a question, ridiculous or not, gone, that's a ridiculous question. How come you don't know that? Everyone's gone, OK, so this is what's happening. And, you know, got a piece of paper, yeah, <laughs> basic yeah. engineering for the psychologist in the room. You know, pe- people like talking about their jobs and they like talking about the problems they have with their jobs. They feel better having shared it with someone. So do not be scared of asking any questions. Because I guess it's, it is one of the things, isn't it, that um, if you're thinking that, then there's bound to be somebody else in the room thinking yeah, yeah, as yeah. well. And, and like I said, for, sort of, for, for some participants, it's almost like therapy, uh, <laughs> being able to explain stuff. Um, and this is just to make my life easier about uh, who, who to get on the podcast next. Who would you suggest I interview? Or what type of person do you think I think I should be having on here to have a chat, chat with? Well, uh, two t- spring to mind. Um, Rebecca Lawton, who I just mentioned. Um, so she did her PhD with Jim Reason at Manchester, but is now very much into the healthcare psychology field. Um, runs the team um, over here at the um, at patient research centres. Um, so she's great. Um, she's, she's lovely. And she'd give a really interesting spin on it, on what's going on in psychology, I guess, still from an academic perspective. And the other one, of course, is our dear Jean Page. Yes. It's um cool. So, yeah, that's... yeah. So Jean's recently retired with her God, how many years of human factors experience? But she's been a mainstay at BAE and she is a hoot. Yes. Um <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's almost a, it's not often you, you you sort of say end of an era is, is sort of justified and stuff like that, but yeah. it truly is. Oh, she'll be back. Um, back. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so some sort of consultancy role. Um <laughs> No, Susie, thank you for your insights. That's that's really cool. And it's been really great to not only catch up with you, but um, but to hear, um, you know, how you've dealt with some of your um, challenges throughout this. Um, and as I said, said from the beginning, it's great to catch up with people who you think you know, but actually I've learned uh, a lot more about you. So that, that's been fantastic. 
Um, and thank you to everybody for listening. Uh, feel free to comment about your thoughts on this episode on the social media channels or whatever it is that you're um, listening to this through. And while you're at it, it would be really helpful if you could take a couple of minutes to rate this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to. Um, it helps others who are searching for content like ours. We all know Human Factors is a um, a world that, that isn't necessarily on the on the, the front of everybody's tongue, as it were. And so if people are trying to find it, you rating it will help them find it. As for now, thank you very much, Susie, and thank we you. will see you see you all on the next episode. Thank you for listening to 1202, the Human, the Human Factors, Factors Podcast. Podcast. Please do get in touch with your thoughts, questions, and comments. You can contact us on social media such as Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook at 1202 Podcast. See you next see time. You next. And remember, it's more than just common sense.